morning. I have to warn you, though I'm from Houston, this sermon has not yet been approved by the mayor. But since I'm here in the Cleveland area, I think we'll be okay. Uh, let's pray. Father, I just ask that you would take these words and reveal yourself to us. Make yourself known to those who have known you for a long time, to those who don't yet know you as we do. Father, I pray you'd open up their heart, that you would make your words come alive. We would pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Alan Thornhill's a British playwright tells a true story of his mom. She was a godly woman, as godly women often do. She liked to write Bible verse references at the end of cards and letters and telegrams that she'd sent throughout the world. She lived at a time when email was still the stuff of science fiction. And so when she was in Europe and a couple she knew was getting married in the United States, she sent them a congratulatory telegram and thought she'd finally put in the verse 1 John 4.18. It's a rather appropriate verse for a couple just about to get married. It's perfect love casts out fear. Well, the person sending the telegram didn't understand his Bible very well. He thought the one in front of John was a mistake. Thought he'd save her a couple pennies, so he dropped the one. And he wrote John 4.18 at the end of the telegram. Now, if you're familiar with John chapter 4, the woman of the well, you might be able to imagine what happened. This young bride with her new husband looking over her shoulder opened up her Bible to see what this woman she had great respect for had to say to her. And she read the words, you'd have you've had five husbands and the man whom you now have is not your husband. <laughs> there was a flurry of communication from continent to continent and they always got it, finally got it set up right. But it does point to the reality that we live in an imperfect world. People make mistakes, people have limitations. And I want to begin this morning by asking you, when that happens to you, how do you treat those who inconvenience you, who hurt you, who make a mistake? Let me make it even more personal. How do you treat yourself when you face your own sins, your own limitations, your own challenges? We're going to talk about this morning about an entirely new way that we're called to treat ourselves and others. It's based on the character of God himself. I've often thought, what would it have been like to be discipled by the Apostle Paul? You ever thought about that? We, we know what he thinks, but how did he treat people? We, we know that a lot of people were messing up. We see that in his letters, but, but what was his response? Well, Paul doesn't make us guess. He actually tells us by reminding the Thessalonians, who had many problems of their own, but in 1 Thessalonians 2.7, he says this, Remember, we were gentle among you, he writes, like a mother caring for her children. So we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her children. If I could edit that, I'd like to say like a mother caring for her first child. That emphasizes it a little bit more. How many of you have had kids or you've seen a first-time mom? So, so you know the phrase, the idolatry of the firstborn, that, that exaggerated care that first-time moms get when you come in the hospital room, you have to put on a hazmat suit before they'll let you hold their precious little baby that throws up and poops and everything, but it's somehow pure and clean. And, and, and I'll, look, I remember when we took our firstborn home from the hospital, I was terrified. I got the safest car seat you could find, still didn't quite trust it, put in the back seat, had all these towels packed around my daughter. We could have driven off a cliff. I think Allison would have bounced by the time we got down there. We only lived about two miles, two to three miles from the hospital, took her home on a beautiful spring day. That harrowing trip took me about 30 minutes in the car. 
Because there's no telling how slippery a completely dry road can be when you've got your firstborn child in the back seat. And then I would bring her home, and I remember the exaggerated care. The nurses said, Gary, you got to protect her head. And I just had this fear I would forget, pick my daughter up, and her head would plop off into the crib or something. I mean, just the nightmares you live with. Now, it's just really the firstborn that lives with this. By the time you've got a third or fourth kid, well, let me put it this way. They're, they're pacifiers if they fall on the ground. Don't get boiled for five minutes. <laughs> a third or fourth kid, you pick it up, <laughs> pop it in the mouth, and you're, you're good to go. But for Paul, for this sake, picture that first-time mom with her firstborn child. Paul says, remember when we were with you? That's exactly how we treated you. And those who have gone far in Christ have understood that this gentle spirit of Christ should mark all of our lives. In fact, one of the last Puritans, one of the most famous Puritans, Jonathan Edwards, said that in many ways you could call gentleness the Christian spirit. He wrote, it is the distinguishing disposition in the hearts of Christians to be identified as Christians. All who are truly godly and are real disciples of Christ have a gentle spirit in them. In other words, he believed there's no such thing as a caustic or a harsh Christian. To be a Christian is to display a gentle spirit. Now, if you understand Paul or Jonathan Edwards at all, these are not naturally sensitive men. They're not preaching their own personalities. In fact, they had a hardness in one sense where they had to debate viciously, in some cases, with so many people. But they were so overwhelmed by understanding the nature of God that they recognized it to be made in his image and to represent him to the world means that we have to adopt the gentleness of God himself. When our kids were growing up, we would talk about Jesus being God because it could help them understand who Jesus is. But as they got older, to help them understand the nature of God, I would talk about the Christ-likeness of God. I could say to my kids, what I mean by that is if you want to know how God is, you look at Jesus and God is just like that to help them relate to a God they can't see. And the Bible goes out of its way to describe Jesus as a gentle person. In fact, before Jesus was even born, it was predicted that he would be gentle. Zechariah 9.9 prophesies, and that's repeated in Matthew 21.5, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey. Jesus approaching Jerusalem on a donkey in one sense was a theological statement. You don't go to war on a donkey. Imagine some Hollywood epic, an army is advancing on a city, but they're all jumping on donkeys, you know, bouncing up and down. It, it becomes a farce at that point. It's a Mel Brooks movie, not a serious action flick. When Jesus approached Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, he's making a statement, I'm not here at war with you. I come as a friend, a savior, a healer. And then while Jesus was alive and as he taught, he affirmed himself as gentle. Many years back, I wrote a book on the virtues, and one of the things I had to overcome is that Jesus almost never uses virtues to describe himself. He's writing to, or speaking to a largely preliterate society, and so he would use images. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the light of the world. I'm the gate. But there's only one place where Jesus wanted it to be so specific, rather. He, he didn't want you to have to extrapolate from an image. You might have some misunderstanding. There's one time we said, you want to know who I am? Flat out, here's who I am. Matthew eleven twenty nine. I am gentle and humble in heart. For all generations to know, it's exactly who he is. 
Then after Jesus died and was raised from the dead, the early church remembered him as gentle. In the midst of an argument to the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 10, Paul is trying to make the strongest appeal he can muster. And so he goes to the very nature of God, and here's what he says, we appeal to you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. He's not arguing that Jesus is gentle here. He's assuming that when they think of Jesus, they think of gentleness. That's why he can make this appeal. So I want you to put that together. The Bible predicts Jesus will be gentle. Jesus affirmed, I am gentle. The early church remembered he was gentle. God reveals himself to us as a gentle God. Now here's the thing. If you were to go to the next Browns game, stop 100 people. Say, I want you to give me three words to describe who God is. You'd have 300 responses, right? 100 people, three words. I would be shocked if you showed me that list of 300, if even one or two said God is gentle. When our generation thinks of God, they don't think of gentleness. Even though this is how he reveals himself, that's not what comes to the front of their mind. And what pains me about this is that the consequences of rejecting this God are eternal and are drastic. And yet they're rejecting often not God as he reveals himself, but a stereotype of God, a God that they assume is true. But here's the convicting part. Why don't they think of God as a gentle God? And might it not be that his people don't display that gentle spirit? Doesn't it make sense if everybody who claimed the name of Christian displayed this spirit of Christ in gentleness? And wouldn't that make them eventually draw the connection that there's something about these Christians that that just treat others differently? There's another passage about the gentleness of the Messiah from Isaiah chapter 42.3. It's a famous passage when it says Jesus would come and the Messiah would not break a bruised reed or snuff out a smoldering wick. Isaiah could look the world over. I'm not sure he could find two images more fragile than that. A a reed isn't strong in itself. A bruised reed, you could barely handle it without breaking it. And a smoldering wick represents a flame that is just at the end of its life. It's just hanging on to the end of the wick. If you jostle that candle at all or any slightest of breeze comes by, the flame's going to go out. It's going to be extinguished. The Bible presents the Messiah as a picture of one who can go to somebody who is on their last breath. They've been so beaten up by this world. They're so done. And he can slowly, gently nurture that soul back to life. One inappropriately quoted scripture and they're gone. One more harsh truth or principle applied in a wrong way and they're over the top. But Jesus can come and know he resuscitates them and he brings them back to life. The need to adopt this attitude of the Messiah hit me in a new way some years ago. Uh, I was quite a bit younger as a man, still in my 20s at the time. Lisa and I had two good friends. They were a couple, wonderful couple, involved in ministry. But they faced what so many couples face, infertility. And it was heartbreaking. And we'd prayed for them for years so that they could conceive a child. And finally, we got the good news that Susan had conceived a child. And the whole church was rejoicing. A number of months later, as the pregnancy progressed, I got a harrowing call from Doug. 
He said, Gary, we really need you to pray. The baby has stopped moving. We're going to the hospital to check it out. Please pray. I went right into my bedroom, threw myself face down before the Lord and just pled with God. Please, Lord, let this child live. So if ever there's a couple that's gonna love this child, it's Doug and Susan. You know, if ever there's a couple that will raise this child to serve and honor you, it's Doug and Susan. Please, Susan, please don't let them face this grief. But God in his own wisdom chose to take the child to himself. There's a lonely drive to the hospital. I see Susan in the bed. And if you've been in this situation, you know, there's nothing I could say. You hurt with them. You grieve with them. You cry with them. And after some time there in the hospital room, Doug said, Gary, we need to make some funeral arrangements. Will you go with me? I said, sure. So we go to the funeral home, fill out some of the papers, and then we buy those coffins. It's just this tiny white coffin. I mean, the boy could fit in the palm of your hand that was stillborn. And it breaks your heart, the thought of anybody that small needing to be buried. But we, we picked it out. And they said, Gary, we want to get something to bury with them. They'd They'd called him Little Bear when he was in the room, and so they wanted to get a little bear to put in there to, to remember him by. Will you go with me to get it? I said, absolutely. And so we drive over to the mall, and as we're walking in the mall, I got to admit, this, this is one of the lowest moments of my life. And we, we had the whole history of praying for years that Doug and Susan would conceive, the, the joy that they had, then the fear and the terror that there might be something wrong, pleading with God not to let it be wrong, and then the frustration with God that it had gone wrong. Then going to the hospital and seeing Susan there, just stricken, and, and picking up that cough. And I mean, I, I'm trying as much as I can to support Doug, but I'm just thinking, this, this is tough. So we shuffle into the mall. And they figured we had to get a porcelain bear because a plush bear would be bigger than the boy himself. So Doug looks around in this Hallmark-type store, and he sees what he thinks is the perfect bear to capture the personality of his son that they've lost. His voice was softened, filled with grief, and I heard him ask the middle-aged woman who's behind the counter, how much is that bear? With clipped, bored tone, she says, that bear's part of a set. If you buy that bear, you have to buy the whole set. The whole set's $400. You still want to see that bear? She just didn't want to have to get up and unlock the cabinet. Doug just spiritually flinched. I went and tapped him on the shoulder. Hey, Doug, there's another store just like this at the end of the mall. It was a huge mall. I said, let's, let's go see what they have. So we went down there, beat down a little bit further. We walk into the store, and there's a young gal behind the counter, spunky personality, a couple different colors in her hair, a couple different pieces on her face that you don't usually see. But just lifted our spirits with her attitude, with the, with the joy. And, and Doug walks in and, and he sees the exact same bear in another cabinet and expecting to be disappointed. He says, Does, is that bear part of a set? She goes, yeah, it is, but I might be able to sell it by itself. Let me go back with my boss and check. She gets off her chair. She goes in the back. She comes out. It is a part of a set, but I can sell you an individual one for $29.95. Can I wrap it up? He said, that would be great. As we were walking out, I was just struck by how two different women, one who just beat us down a little bit further, obviously disappointed in her own life, and one who just sort of lifted us up that she wasn't overcome by life, just by her personality. But, you know, that's not the point of the story for this passage in Isaiah. The point of the story is it dawned on me, bruised reeds and smoldering wicks don't wear signs. 
If you were to interview these two women, why do you think two guys are walking in your store to purchase a porcelain bear? If you were to interview them and say, why are do you, where do you think these two men were before they came to visit your store? Give them a thousand guesses. They're not going to say, you know what, I bet they just left the hospital after having been forced to have a, a stillbirth of the child that had been prayed for for years and then the terror of the moment that there might be something wrong. And I bet they're buying it to place in the coffin of this child to remember them in a way. There, there's no way they would have guessed that. And it hit me every time I go to a public place, a mall, a restaurant, a church, I'm surrounded by bruised reeds and smoldering wicks. There might be a reason the waitress can't remember my order and I ask for water three times. There might be a reason that somebody jostles me as I'm going through the mall because they're not really paying attention. For all I know, it's an older couple that left the doctor and they don't have a sign over their head that says, sorry, but the doctor just said, really, there's nothing we can do. You just need to put your affairs in order. Or the waitress who's trying to hold her family together but got the final call from her husband saying, I'm sorry, I'm done. I just don't love you anymore. I found someone else. I remember praying from that day on, Lord, if I'm going to represent the Messiah in a fallen world with bruised reeds and smoldering wicks, I need the spirit of the Messiah. Give me the gentleness of Christ. But it's not just in the public sphere that we need the gentleness of Christ. It's in our private homes. If you ask why it is that those we love the most are often the hardest to be gentle with, why is that? When my kids were much younger, my little daughter was just a three or four-year-old toddler. I was out trying to work on one of our cars, which is always a humiliating experience for me. I'm a mechanical idiot, to be honest. If you put a wrench in my hand, I feel the testosterone just rushing out of my body. I, I don't know what to do with it. And it's not like I've tried. Sometimes I thought I'd save some money. One time I thought I'll save us 40 bucks. I'll change our own oil. I thought, man, I've written some books. I've got a master's degree. I can figure out how to do this. And so I go under there and I, I couldn't get the plug off. I mean, it felt like it was welded on. Well, I found out it's because I was tightening it. And so I stripped it and now it leaked. All right, so Lisa had to take it in to get it fixed because I didn't want to explain what had happened. She came home and said, honey, I'm sorry, we just can't afford for you to work on the cars anymore. So I, I retired after that. Now, the worst thing is my son, seven or eight years old at the time, just the disdain in his voice. He goes, dad, come on, it's righty tighty, lefty loosey. How difficult is that? You know, I, my dad had that mechanical ability. My son, it just sort of skipped this generation. But in this case, I just needed to replace a, a, a headlight, and I, I, I thought I should be able to do that. I couldn't figure out how to get in there. It looked to me like you had to remove 25% of the front end, but a friend later explained that wasn't true. But I thought, if I don't have the knowledge, at least I'm going to have the tools. So I go to Sears. I get this 100-piece socket set, American sockets, metric sockets, long, sandaled, short. I mean, I, I got everything I need, and I'm under there trying to figure it out. I've got my little three- or four-year-old daughter chattering away, hel helping me. She gets curious and she decides while I'm under the car that she's going to open up the socket set to help me. Now, men, you know this. If a toddler opens a socket set, is it right side up or right side down? Upside down. It's just upside down, isn't it? Are sockets round or are they square? 
They're round, aren't they? So if you're working on a cement sidewalk with an angle about like that, you can imagine what happened when I hear this crash and about 60 round sockets tinkling toward the end where there's a sewer at the end of the sidewalk. And I hear a little girl say, uh-oh. <laughs> I look out from under the car and I see Kelsey, you know, just kind of frantically picking up a couple. I'm like, oh, Kelsey. I mean, I'm not a screamer. It was just like, Kelsey. And, and that was it. I saw her stand up. Her lips started to quiver. She starts to walk up the steps to our house. And I called out after. I said, honey, I know you didn't mean to do that. I'm not angry at you. And it was like I turned on a faucet. I mean, she just started deep, heavy sobs, ran up to me, buried her head in my shoulder. She's drenching my shirt. I got to tell you, as a young husband or father, I'm thinking, what's up with this? I mean, how is this girl going to survive in the world if a Kels is going to throw her off like that? But later that week, God often will do this providentially. I was reading this article. Promise Keepers was big at the time, and it was written for men, and it was talking about how men can maintain a positive mental attitude. And one of the things they recommend is that you develop, you divide your life into seven spheres. You've got your vocational sphere, your relational sphere, your spiritual sphere and financial sphere and whatnot. And if you're having difficulty in one area of your life, you just focus on the spiritual sphere, relational sphere, whatever like that. And as I was reading this article, it's like God was looking over my shoulder, pointing out how few of these worlds a toddler has. I mean, Kelsey had no financial sphere. She was young enough to where her brother could come to her and say, hey, Kelsey, here's a nickel. It's bigger than your dime. You want to trade? She said, yeah, yeah, seems like a good deal. The physical sphere was threatening, not encouraging. Seattle has a museum where they create furniture for a person who's six feet tall to show them what the average furniture looks like to a two-year-old. And it's amazing how small and threatened you feel when everything is out of scale for you. And even in the spiritual sphere, though I've seen God reach children at a very young age, their abstract thinking hasn't kicked in, and they can get confused. I was really sobered once when I was away on a trip, and, and Lisa asked one of our kids to pray over the meal. They were very young, and they ended up praying to me. God, thank you for this food. We hope you come home soon. We really miss you. I, we did clear up that theological error, but I don't think I'm quite that arrogant. But I, I realized how... When just that cows, a toddler has no other world to run to. I said, Lord, if I'm not going to lose my kids, I need the spirit of the Messiah at home who wouldn't break a bruised reed or snuff out a smoldering wick because this world can be a fearful place to a young child. In his great classic, The Greatest Thing in the World, 19th century author Henry Drummond warns about what happens when we don't adopt gentleness. Here's what he said. The peculiarity of ill temper is that it is the vice of the virtuous. It is often the one blot on an otherwise noble character. You know men who are all but perfect and women who would be entirely perfect, but for an easily ruffled, quick-tempered, or touchy disposition. This compatibility of ill temper with high moral character is one of the strangest and saddest problem of ethics. What he's talking about here is you know men or women, they would never throw out certain cuss words. They, they would never go at certain sites. They would never come home drunk. They would never gamble the mortgage money on red at a roulette table. 
but they have such a harsh and caustic disposition. They're wounding people left and right. They would denounce gossip, and yet they don't realize with their attitude how much damage they're doing because we don't accept these verses. We don't pay attention to these passages. Yet Drummond warns further the danger when we don't. He says this, no form of vice, not worldliness, not greed of gold, not drunkenness itself, does more to unchristianize society than evil temper. For embittering life, for breaking up communities, for destroying the most sacred relationships, for devastating homes, for withering up men and women, for taking the bloom off childhood. In short, for sheer gratuitous misery-producing power, this influence stands alone. Parents, does our occasional harshness take the bloom off our kids' childhood? Our homes places where only legalistic perfection is acceptable, and everybody walks on eggshells because we're going to be right there if anybody has a bad day or a bad moment. The Bible is actually quite clear that those who call Christ their master will display this virtue of gentleness. Colossians 3.12 urges us, clothe yourselves with gentleness. We wake up, we put it on. As I'm putting on my clothes, as I'm putting on my shirt, can I think, Lord, let me put gentleness on with this because I'm going out to a world and to a home with bruised reeds and smoldering wicks. Paul's more direct in 1 Timothy 6.11 when he tells the young Timothy to pursue gentleness. If I could speak to the men here, it's interesting to me, an older man talking to a younger man called into the ministry, and he tells Timothy to pursue gentleness. What does that mean? It might not be natural to us. Most of us men just don't grow up naturally being gentle people. And so Paul said, if you're going to represent Christ in this world, whether at home or at work, in your school, you have to pursue gentleness. It won't just come naturally. 1 Peter 3.15 says we're to answer non-believers with gentleness and respect. Even the enemies of Christ, we treat them with gentleness. And when Christians really blow it, Galatians 6.1, Paul says this, if someone is caught in a sin, those who are spiritual, which is a euphemism for mature, those who are mature should restore him gently. In case we always like exceptions, Philippians 4, 5 pretty much shuts that door. Let your gentleness be evident to all. What this tells me is gentleness isn't a gift I give, isn't a gift I give to the deserving. It's an obligation I owe to all because of who Christ is, not who they are or what they did. So how do we get there? What will help us become more gentle as people. I want to give you three cliches that I've found so helpful. I can't tell you how many times practically the Spirit has brought these to my mind when I'm about to respond in my naturally harsh way. The first cliche is this, nobody's perfect. And we know that intellectually. If I were to ask any of you, are, are you perfect? You'd ask, of course I'm not perfect. But how we resent it when somebody's imperfections inconveniences us. I know in theory a doctor can't be perfect, but if he messes up with a family member. I know in theory a mechanic might occasionally miss something, but it better not be on my car before we go on a long distance trip. Larry Bird, back when he played for the Boston Celtics, talked about how in early first quarter of a game, 
he was fouled so blatantly, everybody in Boston Garden saw it except for the ref. And for some reason, it just really bothered Larry. How could he miss that? I mean, where did he get his referee license at J.C. Penney's? I mean, he's just he's so frustrated. Reagan, the ref, the whole game. It's late in the fourth quarter, tied game. The Celtics get a fast break going. Larry Bird takes the ball, uncharacteristically misses the layup. The other team gets the rebound, calls timeout, walking off the court. Ref comes up behind Larry and says, hey, Larry, missed that shot on purpose? If you thought he was angry before, I mean, he's fired. He's going to throttle. He turns around, and the ref puts his hands up. Look, I make mistakes too sometimes. And Larry realized, you know what? I know I'm not a perfect player. I really was expecting him to be a perfect ref. You know you need grace at times. You know you need gentleness. Will you give the same gentleness that you need? Can your spouse have a bad day and you just accept maybe they're having a bad day? Can your kids have a down moment? Or is legalistic perfection really the standard that we live by. The second cliche isn't a true cliche. It's a funny one. You got to be older to remember it. People my age remember it. Remember the old Flip Wilson routine, the devil made me do it? It's pretty funny. Got a lot of traction out of it. Well, we know the devil can't make us do it, but we are told in 1 Peter 5.8, the devil is like a roaring lion prowling around looking for whom he may devour. And what this is telling me is not only is the fact that I'm a sinner and my spouse is a sinner and my kids are sinners, but there are real spiritual beings who are laying in wait trying to tempt them to sin, trying to put division in our family, trying to put bitterness in our family, trying to put bitterness and division in this church. And maybe it's just me, but have you ever been tempted or hit right where you're weakest, when you're weakest, and you feel like, man, I feel like I've been set up? You ever wonder that maybe you have been? You ever wonder that maybe your kids and your spouse have been as well? And so we're called to be like Jesus where we're to be a redemptive presence in other lives. We might have never fallen in the way they fell, but we could say, look, I know what it's like to be tempted where you're weakest, when you're weakest, and and I may not have experienced that, but let's talk about how the grace of Christ can take you to a new place. Because it is guaranteed that we will need that same grace at another time. We are being preyed upon by spiritual beings. So can we encourage each other as brothers and sisters in Christ? A third cliche, life is tough. This isn't an easy world. It's a bitter world. It's an angry world. It's a tough world. One time when I was working in an office, there's a woman who reported to me and she just let loose one day. I mean, it was so inappropriate what she said and how she said it. And I don't, I don't like being an administrator, but I thought, you know, I really have to confront this. I can't just let this go on. So I was thinking through what I need to do and I was walking toward her office to confront her on this. Another woman who had seen everything stopped me. I said, Gary, before you go in there, I just want you to know something. Last month, she and her husband had their car repossessed. This month, it looks like they may lose their house. And I realized, of course, she snapped at me. Yeah, I could, in a court of law, say she shouldn't respond that way because she shouldn't have. But I could also realize the level of tension in her life has to be through the roof. 
And I could recognize, you know what? She's going to blow up somewhere and maybe I'm in this time for this place for her to let off a little sting. And I I would say this to the parents. One time I was going through a run and my kids were still young at the time. It was such a valuable lesson. I was in a national park and they happened to have a field trip or something going on. And so I'm going through this trail and all the students parted so I could run through. And just running through that group, I must have heard five or six caustic comments, student to student, somebody being torn down, somebody being made fun of, a sarcastic comment about another kid. And, and they hear that every day at school and they come home in a world where they're just always competitive. Do they come home to the same competition and stark competitiveness of a religious nature at home? Or is home a refuge, a place of redemption where they're recognized as children of a Messiah who recognizes himself as a gentle God? And it changed it. Then when my kids would come home and I used to say, how was your day? Fine. What'd you do? Nothing. I just want to say, how dare you respond? And then I pause and I'll say, God, did, did they have a bad day? Were they tempted and they really blew it and they're just ashamed? Did somebody break their heart? Lord, I, I, I may need to, look, I'm not talking about not addressing disobedience. We can't allow blatant disrespect. But this refers to not ignoring the problem, but the way we deal with it with the gentle spirit of the Messiah, the way God deals with us. Life isn't easy, but we have a wonderful God. And I want to say to some of you coming here, if you don't know this Lord and you've always seen God as a tyrant or a taskmaster and this floors you, I I wish you would come up afterwards and talk to one of the pastors and let us introduce you to God as he really is, to God as he reveals himself, the Messiah who won't break a bruised reed, or snuff out a smoldering wick. Let's pray. Father, we've worshipped you already this morning, but we would worship you more for who you are, just the God we need. Lord, you and your power could choose to be a malicious and angry and vengeful God but you choose to bless us by being our Lord who is gentle with us, who will take us in our hurt and in our questions, resuscitate our souls and bring us back to life. Pray these verses would be healing for those who have looked at you in a way that you're not. I pray these verses would be convicting for those of us who have received your gentleness and are rather stingy in showing that same gentleness to others. Lord, let us be more like who you are. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.